Live from New York City, it's the Dream Shakers Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Odom, here with my co-host, George Nunez, and we'll be covering the latest news across the themes of culture, technology, venture capital, and professional development. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, Steph. You gotta let them know how Dream Shakers came about and the overarching theme behind Dream Shakers. That's a fair point, George. That's a fair point. My name, again, Steph... I'm from the Bronx. I went to school here in the city, CUNY, Hunter, where I studied uh, economics Mm -hmm. with a double minor in accounting and computer science. Now, after I left Hunter, I had the ability to partake in some professional experiences out in the field, became a strategy consultant at Deloitte, and now I'm in the midst of preparing for graduate school for a degree in human-computer interaction. Thus far, I have experiences across the spaces of corporate strategy, innovation, and design. Now, before I go into what this podcast is about, I think I think you should provide some people some color around your background too, George. Damn, I thought you was going to be rude enough to not even ask, but I appreciate you, brother. George Nunez from the South Bronx. Some of you may know me, some of you may not, but this is a podcast to get to know me or get to know my perspective. I graduated from Binghamton University. I worked a couple of years on Wall Street, a few years, and uh, I'm a former banker. And now I'm currently a senior associate at Stratum Growth, where we help black entrepreneurs scale. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Now, on your earlier question about what Dream Shakers is. The mystery question. That's meaningful. That's meaningful. We got to provide the people context. Yes, sir. Now, me and George came together a while ago and we were like, you know, there's a void here. Mm. There's something missing here. Mm. There's not a voice in the world Bring that's really on. speaking to the needs of individuals that came from the trenches, mm. but is looking to break into these corporate environments. And that is multiplied to a fact that 10, when we start speaking about tech. Mm. So being that that was the case, you know, me and George is not just ones to complain. We wanted to come up with a solution. We wanted to come up with a way to provide individuals the ability to, one, understand what was happening in these spaces, but also, two, leverage tools to be able to enter these spaces themselves. And that's exactly what Dream Shakers is geared to do. And the name within itself, Dream Shakers, we wanted to look at people who have been able to shake up the industry, but not only that, shakers that have been able to make their dream a reality within the tech space. And that's how that name came about. Big facts on that statement, George. Big facts on that statement. Now, speaking on structure, speaking on purpose, we do things a little differently here at Dream Shakers. We like to break our content up into segments. Three of them. Three of them. Actually, four. Four for y'all today. Four, yeah. Four piece. Four piece, four piece, four piece. So, with that being the case, I'm going to hand it back over to my co-host, George, and he's going to bring us into this first segment. How you feeling on this one, George? If you know, it's pretty interesting, Steph. Might I add. But we're, we're going to start off with the segment. The Internet of Things, IOT. Now, here is when we discuss and break down some of the major headlines you as the viewers and audience want to hear about. So the first one to kick it off, Amazon breaks into the healthcare industry. Now with Amazon, they decided to build out and create their own division, the Amazon Pharmacy, where they've been able to break into the retail space and have access to pharmaceuticals and participating pharmacies as well. I want to hear your take on this stuff because it's pretty interesting. This seems like a dream shaker moment and Bezos is just breaking into all these types of industries. He has retail, he has the entertainment industry with Amazon Prime, and now he's breaking into pharmaceuticals? What's going on here? Well, it's simple, you feel me? This is dream shakers, you know? We we defy odds, we create new paradigms, and Jeff Bezos is on that same type of energy. Mm. He coming in, he's shaking the room, he putting the industry on notice, 
And this move to use prime pricing to bring down the cost of both generic and brand name drugs allows Amazon to provide customers without insurance, that's important, a means to take advantage of competitive pricing. Now, for all of our audience, you have to remember that if you don't have insurance in this country, your healthcare costs are through the roof. Finished. And there's been no one really that's been able to say, okay, you know, here's a service that you can use, that you can leverage to bring down those costs of healthcare. Now, what Amazon is trying to do is leverage the size of its customer base long-term. This is a long-term play. Leverage the size of its customer base to bring down the cost of these offerings, right? And continuously apply pressure to those very same pharmaceutical companies. I think what's going to happen is that Amazon is going to see itself merge into this sort of insurance hybrid, right? Where it's providing individuals with Prime the access to cheaper medical solutions, but also putting pressure, again, on those pharmaceutical clients to bring down the price such that they can provide these options to Prime holders. And this is actually something that's already being borne out in the market because established players are already reeling. With the announcement, just the announcement, not even any major movements on the ground, Walgreens, CVS, immediately shedding value in terms of their stock price. Now, there are, of course, some risks on the horizon for Amazon, and some people have already mentioned, and this comes from sources like Bloomberg, that the in-person effect, right, so you being able to go to your local Walgreens, you being able to go to your local CVS and interact with a pharmacist is something that a certain segment of customers are really valuing. But, you know, the last time I went into a Walgreens and had a conversation with my pharmacist, they was like, hey, your drugs ain't ready. Go back and look through the aisles and see what else is out there. You know, maybe you want to buy some overpriced granola, right? (laughs) (laughs) That was was the extent of, of my experience. So I think it really depends on how you perceive that relationship and whether or not that's something that even still exists. This, right, I think more and more these big box retailers, your, your Walgreens, your CVS, have commoditized that process, and it's less of like a deep, enriching experience that you're having with another human being. So I think potentially that's a place where these conventional players can kind of defend or fend off Amazon, but at the same time, I don't feel like that's a strong enough measure to prevent Amazon from entering and really dominating the space. But wanted to hear your thoughts more on this, George. Absolutely, Steph. And before I dive in, just a quick disclaimer. None of our commentary or our opinions have nothing to do with you potentially buying stocks in the market. So we just wanted to put it out there, do your own research. Now back to the podcast. Back to what we were discussing. I'm in full agreement with you. I mean, look, Steph, as you know, we have people that we grew up, grew up with, that we are surrounded by, that we know that can't afford some of these prescribed drugs. Mm-hmm. They can't afford insurance. It's just, as you as you said, it's through the roof. So Amazon creating a game-changing model like this could provide opportunity, but also it could scale to the point where maybe it might be too big. Maybe they may be maybe they might pose as a serious and potential threat to some of the existing players mm-hmm. in this market, such as CVS. Uh, we we could also look at Walgreens, right? There's just others that um, are shaking in their boots. And I think that it's going to be important to see how this occurs. Maybe it might. I'm curious to see because when, I mean, we know in business and, and in business cycle, when certain businesses get too big, people are like, hey, come on, let's team up. So I might be smelling a merger acquisition pretty soon just to compete with Amazon if they get that big. I mean, it just it just 
goes to show how powerful and dangerous Amazon can be. And like I said, they've been playing and in, in dibbling and dabbling in so many spaces, pharmacy, entertainment. Um, they bought a, a hundred thousand electric uh, trucks for de- or a hundred thousand electric delivery trucks to deliver in terms of freight and logistics. So we'll see how everything plays out. But yeah, I, I'm trying to see if they're going to be too big to fail. That's a big fact, bro. That's a big fact. And, and before we move on to our next statement, I just wanted to clarify a point. I said uh, I went to CVS to pick up some drugs. No, I went up to CVS <laughs> to pick up a flu shot. Just had to just had to clarify that. Just had to clarify uh, that. That sounded uh, uh, crazy. I just had to. <laughs> Had to patch that one up. So we're moving on to our next segment, Connect Homes. Ooh. And this is this is major, right? This is a brand new approach to community building in the form of modular homes developed around an infill model. And what that means is that development will be taking place on vacant or reclaimed plots of land that already be serviced by a city's present day infrastructure, right? So I, I wanna know what you think about this opportunity, George, and how did you think about this potential offering? Absolutely, I think that this poses a interesting opportunity, right? Um, this is what I like to call the, the COVID startup. Like they've been able to arise during this time or pandemic of COVID. And given that they were able to scale, they were able to raise a certain amount of funding, um, roughly around 5 million thus far. So a regular standardized home cost to build is one to 1.5 million, but for connected homes, it's 174,000 all in. And on a higher end, it's 825000 So it's much cheaper. I'm just trying to see how things are going to be regulated from a political and um, government standpoint, right? Like, can they come in New York? Can can they have that opportunity to grow as much as they would like in these uh, metropolitan cities? And also, we spoke on minorities and, and people that come from disenfranchised communities. Well, the same thing applies to connected homes. Like, can people from these disenfranchised communities be able to afford these kind of homes? Does it make sense? Uh, is it only available in certain markets? Can they play with the FHA loans or certain loans to, to get ahead and, and buy these uh, homes with a down payment. So I'm, I'm curious to see what your thoughts are on this stuff. Appreciate the assist on this one, George. Yeah, I think, you know, much like you mentioned, Connect Homes is in a real interesting space, right? We have units, much like you mentioned, range from 460 square feet to 3,200 3, square feet. Uh, price ranges that Transition completely across the board from 174k to 825k. That's it's a big range, but again, in comparison to the numbers that you were citing earlier about those markets, well above the million dollar mark. And given that that's the case, I think Connect Homes is in a very strong position to disrupt this space of affordable housing. Now, if I can take you, I can take our audience back in time to think about how did the process of subsidized housing really begin? Well, it it started after World War II, right? After the GIs came back from Europe. Essentially what was happening here was that we had the development of suburbs. And when we had the development of suburbs, we had the introduction of the cookie cutter home. Now, the reason why these homes were labeled cookie cutter was because they were essentially mirror images of each other. And this was done intentionally. This was done to bring the cost down. This was done to make sure that there was a product that was going to be utilized by these GIs and meet the price point that these individuals would be able to take on given the limited resources that they had. Now, this is relevant because Connected Homes is trying to do 
the same thing. It's not on the scale quite yet, just given the uh, access of capital that this company has. But essentially what the thought or the idea is here is that by establishing manufactured units that can be assembled on site, that can be leveled up or down again, based off of the needs of the individuals that will be living in these residencies, you are able to provide a product that can scale and that can be standardized such that you can bring the costs down. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this company executes on that vision. And I think the timeline for that vision is going to be a bit larger or a bit longer than the typical five to seven year timeline that we typically expect with startups and their exits. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one quick point, I want to see how the contracts are structured in terms of them selling these homes to municipalities, to third party services, and providing this to house people. Apparently, the prices for the shelters range anywhere between 20 to 30K per bed or 80,000 per module. And so I want to see like what's going to allow them to to have their ROI and recoup their their return on investment moving forward. But yeah, I, I'm extremely excited for them, especially the fact that they got government, potential government contracts on the line. And I think that piece around government contracting is important, right? Because I also think it's indicative of where this company needs to go in order to be able to hit the numbers and metrics that it needs to make this concept viable. So we'll definitely keep our eye on Connect Homes. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to go into the next piece, which is the Apple situation. I want to hear how you feel about this because I smell PR, Steph. Apple is literally trying to cut its app store revenues from 30 to 15% for some developers. What's the story around that? I'm curious. Well, your smell is right, George, because there's definitely all types of PR (laughs) up in the air. Um, Essentially, what Apple is trying to do here is is do away with the belief that they are undercutting small business, right? And, And when you look at it that way, that narrative is completely true. Apple is not undercutting small business with this measure because this decision to cut app store fees from 30% to 15% for app developers that bring in revenues of less than $1 million is true for 98% of the companies that pay Apple a commission, right? And these according to estimates from Sensor Tower, and this is a third-party analytics data firm. But those developers, right, that 98%, account for less than 5% of App Store revenues from this past year. And again, this is based off of the same data provided by Sensor Tower, which we'll be providing in the show notes. That means 2%, right, 2% of the companies that generate, or rather that operate on iOS, generate 95% of App Store revenue. That's crazy. It's a crazy stat. It's a crazy thing to kind of just come to terms with. And these are your big name players. These are the HBO Maxes of the world. These are the Epic Games, the creators of Fortnite of the world. These are your Spotify's. So when you peel back the veil, when you look at the numbers, when you really dive deep, what you see here is that it's not really a battle between Apple and the you know small developers. What's, what's happening here is that it's really a battle of the titans. That's happening absolutely in this space, and it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. I did a little bit more digging, and what I was able to find was that some people say, "Why don't these services just focus completely on Google Play?" Right? Why don't they just make that the main place where they push these services? You can provide competitive app stores, or you can provide third-party app stores through Google Play's platform, and you don't have to be within their app marketplace. The problem with that though is that you then lose out on the millions upon millions of iOS users who we know from the data are more likely to spend on digital purchases, right? So much so, in fact, that the revenue from Google Play last year was nearly half of that of Apple's revenue. So 
if these companies, and, and again, when you think about Google Play, they also still operate on that same 30% model, right? So you're in a smaller marketplace, you're not able to get as many revenues, uh, and that's 29.3 billion and 50.8 billion. Um, mm. You're in a smaller marketplace, you're not able to get these revenues. And I think it's it just puts these companies in a really tough spot, which is why you've seen them turn to legislation. But wanted to hear, hear your thoughts on, on this, George, and if you had any other pieces that you wanted us to tune into. Yeah, no, I'm I'm in full agreement. I think this is all fluff. They try to figure out a way to cover it up by creating an app store small business program, mm-hmm. which they wanted to, quote unquote, improve the company's standing mm-hmm. and help these small developers. But at the end of the day, they was like, yeah, we'll, we'll take a minute hit. Uh-huh on our bottom line, but it didn't affect them at all. And as you were mentioning, you you were spot on. They they care more about those relationships that they have with the bigger players and the bigger sharks rather than the small fish. So it doesn't surprise me. I think that they're trying to run away from their legal issues, their, their, their antitrust issues out in uh, Europe. But yeah, I'm I'm curious to see how they they move forward. That's fair. That's fair. I think you know now is a great time to switch to our next segment. Welcome to the culture. And and here we're going to be talking about consumer commerce, technology, entertainment. Through, again, the lens of business. So the first segment we have here is that BuzzFeed acquires Huffington Post. This is this is a major moment for BuzzFeed. It's, it's also kind of a rekindling of certain relationships for the CEO as he reconnects with his former uh, starving ground. But wanted to know what your thoughts were on, on this piece, George, and, and how you perceive each side receiving value from this deal. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that uh, BuzzFeed definitely benefits more for Huffington Post because Huffington Post obviously gets a new audience, but BuzzFeed gets a chance to expand their market. And not only that, they get a chance to diversify their audience, which is something that they lacked, obviously. Uh, so I think that's cool, but I also feel like as they merge and they develop these synergies um, for the first few months, the valuations will be down just because of the synergies and they're, they're merging together into the business. But at the same time, as I've seen through various articles, employees are going to take a hit, right? because they're trying to be more efficient. They're trying to watch out for their labor costs, for those accounting majors, their SG&A costs. And so I could see them uh, slashing a lot of their employees out out of the firm to, to run the, the business more properly. Mm. How about you, Steph? Well, well for me, I, I viewed it more from you know, what side, what each side would be receiving, right? So for Verizon, it's a means to re-centralize around the core business that they know the, the most about, and that's wireless cell service, right? Uh, you have this development of a new network in the form of 5G millimeter wave, and it's still very much in its infancy. The service is spotty, the connection when it is there is, is incredibly fast, but when you step outside the line or the, the line of sight rather of a tower, your data rates drop right back to what you would typically see with 4G, right? Like that's not something that you want to have happen with your customer base, especially when you're charging them a premium for these services. When we also look at all of the ways that Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, all of these carriers are speaking about the benefits of 5G, there definitely needs to be a lot of work done in building out the network. And I think Verizon has kind of come to terms with the fact that this is going to need to be their main focus moving into the future. Now, with BuzzFeed, I think what's interesting here is that, you know, they have a really strong core product, right? It's it's connecting with their audience. There hasn't been any, you know, major hiccups in regards to the provision of content. 
And I think this play, from from my eyes and also from the research that I gathered from from the middle market, is mainly based around how do they expand their audience, right? How do they tap into new markets such that they can have the ability to create more targeted promotional content such that they can strike stronger promotional deals with advertisers, right? I think that's what this really, really boils down to and how both of the respective parties take value from this deal. Interesting take, Steph. And now... It's time to bring in the next headline. PayPal's been feeling very generous. So generous that they wanted to create a generosity network, which is a platform where people could raise money, not for companies, not for a cause. Not even for charity, <laughs> for themselves. <laughs> Steph, please walk us through this and talk to us about how PayPal wants to step in the arena of crowdfunding along with GoFundMe and Facebook fundraisers. Yeah, I mean, this is really interesting. I think the service aims to offer, much like you were mentioning, GoFundMe-like functionality, right? Uh, But here, of course, the difference is going to be that there's going to be a limit of $20,000 per campaign. So what this does is it provides present-day customers of the PayPal network, ease of use, since their payment information is already integrated to the service, and they don't have to, at this point, pay any fees to raise campaigns. Now, I think that's likely to change in the future, and also a reason why PayPal's limited the fundraise amount to $20,000, because... GoFundMe currently charges a flat fee of 30 cent plus a 2.9 percentage fee on top of that amount based off of the funds you raise through your campaign. However, we know within this space of technology that the way companies typically start up in a space is that they provide the service for free or at a very steep discount. They build up their user base. And then once the user base is at a certain threshold, they flip on the light switch. Suddenly the fees come in. Suddenly the price points change. And now you're dealing with a very different product from a price standpoint. However, you've already gotten the functionality. You already gotten used to the level of accessibility that this product has offered. And now you're locked in, right? Um, And that's how those dollar signs come into these orgs. So given that that's the case, I think PayPal is really just trying to find a way to break into this market, to take some of that market share that GoFundMe currently holds. Because right now, GoFundMe is that dog. Like they the top dog in this space because they currently hold a 90% hold on the market when it comes to these contribution services. Absolutely, absolutely. Give me the loot, give me the loot, give me the loot. People are just going for the bag, Steph. And also, to add on to your point, it's interesting how they capped it off at a 30-day period. So you can roughly raise this 20K in a month. You only have a month to do it. And on top of that, they only have this accessible to the U.S. market. So only people that live in the U.S. I am intrigued by that because if I'm PayPal, I'm like, hey, why don't I just open it up to the world to different countries and see where it goes? But at the same time, I think that they want to focus on their primary market. And if it well, if it goes well, then they'll explore elsewhere. If not, then it just doesn't work. But uh, I am excited about it and I want to see what occurs even further. Very fair points, George. Very fair points. And that brings us to the third article. And what we're thinking about here, what we're thinking about here is robo-taxis. 
because robo taxi companies have just gotten the green light to charge for rides in California. Mm. Now, now, George, is that a platform? Is that a service that you're super comfortable with? Could you see yourself getting inside a robo taxi? to get into the city every day? The answer to that amazing question, Steph, is no. I don't feel comfortable getting into a autonomous vehicle just yet. As I mentioned before, Jeff Bezos is basically one of the companies that are breaking in with his electric vehicles. And he's one of many. Apple has been car testing, seeing if if their autonomous vehicles could work. And Uber is also in the play for that. Tesla, obviously. But yeah, I don't know if I feel comfortable doing that. And more so, there's a lot of people who not only don't feel comfortable getting into that car, but they also don't feel comfortable riding on the highway next to an autonomous vehicle. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious on how this will work. Also, again, as we continuously mention with other topics, but it still applies, New York is still highly regulated. So I don't know if we're going to see autonomous vehicles driving anytime soon. And even with a Tesla, people still have to be in a vehicle. So, Yeah, I think those are pretty interesting takes, George. One of the things that, that stood out to me, I mean, the consumer safety angle was definitely one piece and the confidence in the product, I think that's going to be big. But I think some of the individuals that are a bit more open, open to new technology and new services definitely reside in the California area. Maybe this is why this is the place that they've been trying to pilot the service just to show, you know, proof of concept, get other people behind the idea that, oh, you know, this is safe. This is something that you can leverage. This is something that you can utilize before they expand it into the rest of the country, because I'm very sure that other people have some of those same concerns that you were just mentioning. Uh, however, one of the places that my mind immediately went when I read this, when I read this article, when I read this headline was that, you know, when you begin to automate, right, when you begin to cut back on your workforce, when you begin to unravel the purely cyclical economies that we've come to know in the U.S., I think that's when you start to open some very interesting doors. And one of those doors leads you to questions like, well, you know, what happens when you have companies that have, you know, 60 percent, 70 percent, 80 percent? of their workforce automated, right? Those are those are jobs that are no longer being held by everyday working Americans and instead are being inhabited by robots, right? And these robots aren't paying taxes. These robots aren't contributing to the economy in new ways in the forms of buying additional products and services. It's more you know, efficient for the business. More, more efficient for the business, but it's, I think it's less efficient for society. I don't of know course, about- Of course, absolutely. I don't know about you, but um, I can't remember a time where I saw a, a robot watching a 60-inch TV in their living room. Did you? No, not at no, all. Not at all, right? Maybe I Am Legend with Will Smith. Maybe, but maybe I Am Legend with Will Smith. I'm not sure. I'm not have, sure. Have you, ever go, have you ever seen a robot uh, going to the nail salon to get their nails done? Uh, maybe in I Am Legend, <laughs> but not in real life. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not, right? So when you, when you think about, again, you're pulling this income away from individuals that would be leveraging those services, right? So you begin to have like these these unaccounted for ripple effects um, that damage other aspects of of our economy. So I, I think you know business leaders uh, should be a little a little cautious about um, forging too heavy into these waters because you know one thing that's become more and more prevalent is that they're not the the biggest advocates for regulation, right? They think that they can that they can figure it out on their own and that you know. The introduction of regulation just complicates things, um, but I but I think the way we're going, it's it's definitely going to bring up 
conversations around taxation. It's going to bring up conversations around regulation, and it's and it's ultimately going to bring legislators back into into the fold. But you know, on the on the more basic question of would I get into Roby Taxi? Yeah, I think I think I would. You know, I'm I'm very much a big believer in tech. I I enjoy the latest and greatest uh, pieces of technology. I ran out and purchased the AirPods Pro the moment that they dropped. Right. Um, and and have have been interested in like tinkering and in, in products. Jailbroke my phone when I was like eleven. So I think I think this is something that I'm very much interested in. But uh, we're gonna see how it how it plays out and what the broader uh, ramifications of this decision are. I'm actually very excited as well, Steph. I may get in Robo Taxi. <laughs> it really depends. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. And with that. <laughs> We have a special segment. Care to guess what it is? Any takers? Any takers? No? VC Money Moves. VC Money Moves is literally where we discuss the money activities, the business activities occurring in the venture capital space. And with that... Steph Duolingo Hablas Espanol Claro que si Listen man They literally (laughs) Closed A round That will value At Well they pretty much raised 35 million On a 2.5 billion dollar valuation And they've been Clearly able to scale but they've also made headways in the e-learning space, in the ed tech space. What's your thought on that? I know that you're big in academia, you're big on tech. It's a perfect way to jump in this segment or even in this topic. What's going on? Yeah, so I think they're doing a little bit of everything that you've just you've just highlighted, right? Uh, Duolingo is a very interesting service, right? They've been in existence since about 2011. That's when they had their first uh, significant raise, and the company has, as of late, seen 100% year-over-year growth. Right? That's that's nothing to scoff at. I think what's happening here with Duolingo and the freemium model that they've leveraged up until this point uh, has has really paid off. And that the core product is understood as something that will be able to provide you with a meaningful grasp of a language, right? Like you can go into these services, you can either leverage them as a way to completely learn a language, or you can pair it with some of the learnings that you've already been receiving from the classroom to kind of double down on core concepts. In fact, on that second topic, this is where uh, Duolingo has seen some major strides in regards to progress because they've been reaching out to educators to leverage the platform, especially in this age of COVID and online learning. Now, to push that a little bit further, I think one thing that I saw when I was doing some of the initial digging was that Duolingo is in a really good position to be able to displace services like TOEFL, right? And and TOEFL exams, right? Which have traditionally been the way that individuals from uh, countries where English isn't the primary language. ESL students, English as a second language. Right. uh, Have have had to like pass this exam in order to take on graduate studies or even undergraduate studies uh, here in the U.S., right? So if, if Duolingo can position their services in such a way, whereas they become the de facto service in that space on top of the freemium model that they're leveraging, I think this can provide some some very real revenue benefits for the company and potentially open an avenue where Duolingo is expanding on their core service. Absolutely, Steph. And I would like to agree and take it a step further. What if they create partnerships with professors around the world and they create this platform where they're able to teach different languages and gain exposure from there? I think that would allow them to create a stronger brand presence and also 
make them a serious or potential threat to Udemy or Teachable or Khan Academy because now they're getting into that ed tech space like how they should and not just solely relying on the app. And I think, you know, one thing also to mention here, you know, this is VC Money Moves. We are speaking about the the latest and greatest that's happening within the venture capital space. Absolutely. We, We have to kind of take a step back and think about some of the VC partners that have decided to uh, take part in this deal. Um, one of them being Durable Capital and the other being General Atlantic. Well, General Atlantic had previously taken part in uh, earlier rounds with Dueling. This isn't their first time engaging with this company. Uh, but Durable Capital, this is the first time that they've engaged with Duolingo. And when you look at you know some of the things that each of these VC partners pride themselves on in terms of the motifs that their underlying portfolio companies abide by, I think it's really interesting and it speaks a lot about Duolingo as a company. So with Durable, they are very much interested in taking part or investing in companies that pride themselves on being fully in sync with either their shareholders, their employees, and their customers. And I think this is a great match with Duolingo, right? The benefit that individuals that are receiving from leveraging this platforms is is two ways, right? So one, you have the benefit of providing Duolingo ad-related revenue from the use of their product, but two, you're also gaining a very real and meaningful skill. Now, with General Atlantic, the interest there is on the spaces of consumer, financial services, healthcare, life sciences, uh, and technology, which they believe will continue to fuel large-scale developments that spark change throughout the world. And again, when we come back and we think about edtech, we come back and we think about the proliferation of languages and the abilities for individuals to to speak with other people within this world in their native language, in their maiden language. Uh, I think this does a very great job at creating outcomes, creating experiences that push us as, as a society, as a race, forward. So again, when we think about these two themes and how they coalesce with the partners that are taking part in this round, I think this is a perfect match. Yeah, I'm in full agreement, Steph. And with that, we're going to move on to the next topic in this segment, and that is Discord is close to closing a round that would value the company at up to $7 billion. Crazy, crazy stuff here. So, so George, we're back with another valuation super story, right? And now I don't know if our audience knows, but but Discord is a really big deal in the PC community, right? This is the number one way that individuals connect. Um, they build rapport with one another. It started out in gaming, but it's since expanded to other facets of, of social life. Absolutely, like and, media and podcasting, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and give it back to you so you can you can expound more on those thoughts, but... Yeah, it sounds sounds like a really interesting interesting play here, George. Absolutely, I'm in full agreement. And the fact that they've been able to scale mm-hmm. their monthly active users, mm-hmm. and it's doubled this year to 120 million, mm-hmm. is completely amazing. They've seen at least 800,000 downloads a day, mm-hmm. and. <laughs> Apparently, a fun fact, it's due to that stupid game that everyone likes to play called Among Us. Mm. And they've been, like, literally growing from there. So I believe that Discord is seeing its initial growth from the gaming industry, as you mentioned, with the rise of multiplayers and multi-platform games. And they found a way to rebrand themselves by heading into different spaces. But the biggest thing that has caught a lot of people's eyes is that they've created this program where they wanted to step away and create safety for app users to fight off white supremacy. So apparently it's called Safety Center. That's the program that they started. And they regulate what active users say or do 
on the app to eliminate or eradicate hate speech and abuse. And because of that, creating that safe space and putting an emphasis on that. So I'm I'm actually very excited for them. And I believe that they're going to scale. They're going to do amazing moving forward. Yeah, I, I think I'm in, in complete agreement here. The The company is actually really interesting. Um, it, it brings in, you know, much like you were mentioning, uh, revenue from, from three separate sources. One is a subscription service called Nitro. Um, then it has gain store distribution fees from which it takes a, a 10% cut. Um, and then it also has general one-off digital purchases. And you can think of these things like, you know, digital merch, right? So you have things like gifts, you have emojis, you have sound packs. Uh, and these are things that individuals can leverage on the Discord platform to create, you know, stronger bonds with the individuals that they're speaking to on a, on a daily or weekly basis. Now, according to Crunchbase, the last time they've raised a full round was in 2018 with a Series F, uh, and that was led by Green Oaks Capital. Uh, these This past year, they have raised capital three separate times, um, but they have yet to formally declare another Series round. Um, if I had to guess, I'd say they're probably somewhere in like a Series F-3 type space. And that with the next significant amount of investment there, they're very likely to be at either a Series G or on the verge of an exit, right? Because again, when we when we think about the timelines for some of these startups, um, it's looking like they're very much at that point. Point, absolutely. Where they'd either be acquired or, you know, spin off and, and try to make their own public offering. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm wondering as to what they plan to do. If they plan to go... If they plan to go public and do IPO or if they want to spin off and, and exit and do something, something else. And in terms of the funding, they've raised as far $379.3 million, And they've got specific backing from VCs like Greylock, Index Ventures, Spark Capital, Tencent, and Benchmark. So... I'm extremely happy for them. They they have a unique product in the market. So let's see how it all plays out, stuff. Let's see how it all plays out. And this week, we're going to go ahead and shift to our next topic, which is called the level up. Level up, level up, level up. We're big on community here at Dream Shakers, and we want to see you all grow with us, right? We don't want this to just be a one-way street where you're listening in. You're, you're definitely gaining knowledge, right? But you're not gaining anything that you can leverage to enter the field yourself. We, we, we very big on making sure that you can take action on the advice we provide each week. We want to see the kings and queens grow. That's a big fact. So on that note, this week we have the Hack NY Fellows Program. This is a summer-long experience for college students pursuing a future in tech. And the program is made up of three pillars. You have immersion, you have experience, and you have community. We're going to be sure to drop the link to the formal opportunity in our show notes. Now, some of the things that you may be thinking about is, well, you know, what is, what's the benefit for students with this program? Well, that's a good question. All fellows that take part in this program are paired with partner companies and able to land paid internships for the following summer. You also have the opportunity to live together with your fellow fellows to establish deeper bonds during the summer and to connect with former Hack and Y fellows from previous classes to build up your network. Now, this program has been in existence for over 11 years and now boasts a 300 plus alumni base. Now, George, let me know if you know of some of these companies, because, you know, these, these are relatively small shops, I think. You have places like, you heard of Google? Yes, sir. Uh, maybe, maybe Facebook, you heard of that? Yes, sir. How about Lyft? Yes, sir. Okay, one more, one more. What about LinkedIn? Um, hmm. Yes, sir. <laughs> That's factual. Exactly. These are all big name players. You know, Dream Shake is here. We don't shortchange you. We're going to provide you the opportunities to win. So if you have 
interests and establishing a career in technology, please, please, please feel free to use the link we provided in the show notes to learn more about this opportunity. The round one and round two deadlines admittedly have passed, but there's still an opportunity to take advantage of this program by submitting an application between the round three deadline on December 30th. Absolutely. That was amazing stuff. We greatly appreciate you on that insight. And now we're moving on to the next segment where we have community thoughts. We engage with you. We partake with you. We don't take you for granted. Mm-hmm. And so we post a question on the gram to see if you all would be interested in asking us questions and we provide our answers to. And now we have a special guest who has asked us a particular question all the way from Austin, Texas. Chuck Woody, greatly appreciate you. Binghamton alum. Graduated with him way back when. We're still youngins. But he asked two questions. One quick question he asked Steph, and he wanted to hear our thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. He wanted to hear what we have to say about no code tools as a potential bridge to coding. That is. That's a complex topic, man. I can't give you a, a straightforward answer with that. No code is interesting, right? There are a set of tools essentially that you can leverage to create uh, digital offerings that traditionally you would have needed some level of background experience in coding to be able to accomplish. Now, when you think of some of these offerings, you have uh, things like Webflow. Uh, I think there are other companies out there in regards to the web development space, but I know the one that comes directly to mind is, is Webflow on the web development tip. But wanted to know, you know, what are your thoughts in regards to to this space? Yeah, absolutely, Steph. I think that, look, no code tools are an opportunity for non-techies to break in into the tech space. It's a low barrier to entry. But at the same time, it sort of creates this friction with software developers, engineers, coders who had to put in work, who had to put in time just to get their opportunity. And now they look at other people and like, hey, like you don't have to put in the same amount of hours or work that I did to get the opportunity. I mean, it depends. It depends on the particular job, job description, pay, salary. Everything is all in full effect, but I definitely believe that it creates friction, but it also creates an opportunity there. And I'm, I'm excited for anyone that's that's taking on that new role, a new journey. It sort of creates that that feel, that different feel that we need to see within tech. So um, I'm, I'm excited for it overall. And with that, moving on to the next question, thoughts on the rare breed VC funding black entrepreneurs as of late. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's indicative of a, a larger uh, movement within the space to get behind black founders. Uh, I think, you know, this year with the protests and all the activity around Black Lives Matter, that the industry has finally begun to take some, you know, real action in addressing the concerns around inequity, right? Uh, so on, on that front, I think it is a step in the right direction. Um, and it's very interesting to see that this work is being done in, in Texas um, and, and in Austin. Absolutely, yeah. I think that it's great to see that we see the COVID and BLM effect, like you said, Steph, and how a lot of companies are stepping up and and funding and providing opportunities, new opportunities to to black entrepreneurs and black founders. So get your money, get your bag while you can. Thanks all. That's a wrap. Kings and queens, ladies and gents, thank you for tuning in. Tell a friend to tell a friend to tune in to the next episode. 